Our reading is Exodus 7. It's page 49 in the Pew Bibles. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my sins and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by the great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his his servants and became a, a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and as he goes down to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take your hand, take your hand the staff that turned into the serpent, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and they shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink from the water of the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even, his, take even this to his heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. 
Seven full days passed before the Lord had struck, after the Lord had struck the Nile. Amen. If you keep that reading there before you, you'll uh, find that helpful to follow along. We saw last week that Moses had gone to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had not listened. It had made things worse for Israel. They were now forced to make bricks without straw. And they were ready to quit. So in chapter 6 last week, God gave Moses a final pep talk before being sent back to Pharaoh here in chapter 7. And the point was, look to me. Look at what I will do. Put your hope and confidence in me not yourself. Pharaoh believed himself to be a God. Moses was sent to represent God before Pharaoh. But Yahweh alone is God before these men. And these two miracles we'll see today are meant to show that. A God amongst men. And so I want to show you four things here in in Uh, this chapter. Firstly, we see here standing in the place of God in verse 1 to 7, a taste of what's to come in verses 8 to 13, confronting power in verses 14 to 19, and then God hitting where it hurts in those last verses. Look at verse 1 there. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And instantly there's a contrast at play here. The pharaohs considered themselves as gods amongst men, and that is how people treated them. There's a quote here from a character called Rechmeyer. He was uh, the equivalent of a prime minister. He says, what is the king of upper and lower Egypt? That is pharaoh. He is a god by whose dealings one lives, the father and mother of all men, alone by himself without an equal. This is reflected even in some of the pharaoh's names. You think of the most fairest pharaoh, Tutankhamun. His name means the living image of Ammon. Ammon was fused with the sun god Ra and was the national god. But here the script is flipped, isn't it? Because the exile who walked out of a life in pharaoh's temple to come and lead a slave nation, is the one who represents God before Pharaoh. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. It flips the expectations, doesn't it? The one who's walked out on the court is walking back in, representing the living God. It's worth uh, sort of thinking about who this Pharaoh is, isn't it? Because to this point, we've spoken much of Pharaoh, but it's in this sort of third-person term. We don't really know who it is, isn't it? And there's something of an intentional irony here, I think, that the Pharaoh isn't even given the courtesy of his name because he's not really as important as he may have thought he was. Trying to sort of establish a date and establish who this is is challenging. But the most likely answer is that the pharaoh in the early Exodus period is a character called the I. And uh, hopefully there's a picture sort of there of him for you to sort of... They all look a little bit the same, if I'm honest. 
Uh, and the, the Pharaoh here that comes afterwards that is dealing with Moses now is a character called Amenhotep II. In fact, I think uh, this is uh, Amenhotep here. Yeah, you see his mummy, which, is, which has actually been found by archaeologists uh, there on the right, and then a sort of uh, picture of him, uh, perhaps in better days, um, on the left. Amenhotep was known for hating foreigners. This is an excerpt from a letter that he gave to a provincial ruler. That's significant because he hates the Israelites, isn't it? He says, now these people from Tekshi, that is Syria, are worthless. What are they good for? Another message for the viceroy, do not trust the Nubians, but beware of their people and their witchcraft. Amenhotep uh, has an unaccounted for dry spell in his military campaigns historically, possibly because his armies have been destroyed at the Red Sea. And one final reason it may be Amenhotep is his heir was known not to be the true heir, possibly because his firstborn son had been killed in these strikes from God. Moses is approaching, possibly, Amenhotep, certainly approaching as God's representative. And look at what God says. Look at verse 2 to 4 here. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And notice there, just in those few verses, the action of God. You shall speak all that I command you. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my signs and wonders, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. God is recommissioning Moses and Aaron after the disappointment of their first visit and the temptation to want to give up. But it's clear here that it is God who is the one who is pulling the strings. We witness, but God does his work. The rescue will come from God's hand, not from Moses and Aaron's words. We're reminded of this even in the New Testament here. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God changes hearts and builds his church. We witness to the gospel, but God does his own work. And look at how he would do it, verse 4, by great acts of judgment. You see, God is just as well as gracious, which is true hope for the oppressed, isn't it? A weak and a soppy God who does nothing but affirm the world is no hope to anyone and is not truly loving at all. He is both just and gracious. He saves his people by great acts of judgment. And why does he do it? Maybe this is the most important verse here of this little section. Look at verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. It isn't just about judgment for God here, but revelation to the Egyptians. 
God's primary motivator in all of this great rescue, in all of these great miracles, is actually to spread his glory, which is good news, since he is the only one who is truly good, truly righteous, truly perfect. There is nothing better for us than that God be completely absorbed in his own glory being revealed. Anything else is a lesser glory and a lesser light anyway. Nothing could be better for us than for God to be consistently about revealing himself to us. And God will be revealed as the true God over all the earth, over Pharaoh, and over all the gods of Egypt. And then we leave off with this interesting little side note, don't we, that roots it in a particular time and place historically. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. It tells us that age is no barrier to being used by God, is it? It tells us also as well that the latter years for Moses were better than his early years. He may have made a lot of mistakes early on out of the gate, but Moses ends rather well by comparison. Dwight Moody, the American preacher and theologian, puts it like this. He sums it up really neatly. He says, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's courts thinking he was somebody. 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody. And 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. Moses represents God to the man who thinks he represents God on earth to show that he isn't God. Secondly, here we have a taste of what's to come. I wonder if you've ever sort of had a dinner and you get a sort of taste, you get a smell, you get a look of it and you've just instantly thought, oh, uh-oh, this isn't going to be good. This makes me sound a bit like a food snob. snob. I'm, I'm really not. I actually eat anything other than courgettes and bananas. And even those I will sometimes swallow, to be polite. But I I love everything else, but those things I I just don't like. It doesn't matter how you cook them, it doesn't matter how they've been prepared, I, I just don't like them. And my family have a terrible habit of my nan and my mum competing to see, oh yeah, yeah, but you've not had them this way. And they want to be the one to break it. So, you know, there's moments where I come to a dinner and here's what I say, you get a smell, you get a taste, you get a little glimpse, and you think, oh no, oh no. (laughs) This isn't going to go well for me. This little incident here is giving Pharaoh a taste of the meal to come, and it's not good news for Pharaoh. When Pharaoh says to you, verse 9, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. This is the miracle that God has given to Moses earlier in in chapter 4 to be able to prove themselves. And look at what they're asked to do here. Rather than prove themselves with their own skill, their own uh, ability with words, their own level of faith, they must rely on what God has given them. Throw down the staff so it will become a serpent. So verse 10, we read that Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Look at why they're doing it 
by the way. Moses asked, uh, sorry, Pharaoh asked, prove yourself. Prove yourself by giving me a sign. Look at why Moses and Aaron do it. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. I think that's an important difference our author is giving us. They're not doing it because Pharaoh said so. They're doing it because God said so. And Aaron cast down his staff and it became a serpent. And here is, well, potentially interesting, maybe, maybe it won't be. Um, I hope it will be interesting to you. Uh, an interesting question here as to what is it that the staff becomes? The word here in Hebrew for serpent is tannin. It's a word that could be translated as serpent, snake. It could also be translated as a dragon or a sea monster or a crocodile. Earlier in chapter 4, there was a different word used. It meant just snake, nakash. But here, it's tanyan. There is a bit of a wordplay going on because there's three potential options there. There are occasions and moments where Pharaoh is pictured as a dragon, as a sea monster, as a tanyan. A dragon representing Chaos in Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 3, it says, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon, the word is Tanin, that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. So maybe it could be a little dragon or a sea monster that appears. It could, of course, be a snake, as it's most likely translated there for you. It was earlier on, so that would make sense in a way. And if it's a snake, it may well relate to the blue crown that Amenhotep and the other pharaohs wore on their heads, called the kefresh. You can't sort of tell so much here from the stone, but this would have been a very vivid blue. And then right in the middle there is a sort of called-up cobra. It was put there to sort of represent sort of the power that the pharaohs had. Here's a, a comment from one commentator, Michael Morales. He says, the pharaoh is branded, identified and defined by the raised up serpent that donned his headdress as a crown. As an image of the goddess Wajet, the rearing sacred cobra symbolized divine authority and supreme power in ancient Egypt. It could be a dragon or a sea monster. It could be a snake. Third, it could be a crocodile. There is a god amongst this sort of Egyptian pantheon called Sobek. Here is a picture of him here. You see him there with the crocodile head. Again, he represents pharaonic power. Egyptians were into crocodiles, so much so they had a city called Crocodilopolis. What else would you call it? And there's a second god here. This is a god called Kanum. He also is pictured here with a crocodile head who was seen as the creator god and the controller of the Nile. On the right-hand side is uh, a stela that has been uh, unearthed by archaeologists. It's very, very hard to see the picture, um, but in the picture, the pharaoh that we're talking about, who I think is the one that uh, Moses is approaching, Amenhotep II, is dedicating war spoils to this god, Kinnum. If it's a crocodile, then, the link may well be with this very God that Pharaoh worships and adores. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers to him. And magic was a central part of religion in the ancient world and within Egypt. In fact, it was part of their 
worship practices. Pharaoh calls here, one commentator tells us, the priestly representatives of the Egyptian gods, particularly the Mu god Thoth, who is the patron god of magic and divination, to deal with the representatives of the Lord. And so there is a battle here between gods. And we're told here they did the same by their secret arts. And that might be somewhat deflating, I think, for Moses and Aaron, surely, to see them produce a counterfeit sign in its place. But then look at verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. The real point anyway, whether this is a snake, whether it's a dragon, whether it's a crocodile, is that God is coming for you, Pharaoh, and he's coming for your gods. Whether it be the snake god, whether it be the dragon, whether it be the crocodile. Whether it be the dragon, you may be the chaos-causing dragon pharaoh, but God is a dragon slayer. Whether it be the snake, you may have the power of the kingship, but God has the power to eat you alive. Or whether it be the crocodile, you may have the power of the Nile, but by God's power, you will be swallowed up by the Red Sea. God is coming for you, Pharaoh, and your gods. And yet, look at Pharaoh's response, verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And we find here so far in this story that God's word is both resistible and irresistible. It has been irresistible to Moses because no matter the complaints and the doubts, he finds himself obeying. And yet it's been resistible in the life of Pharaoh. No matter the warnings, no matter the chances to repent, he refuses to do so. Pharaoh had asked to see a sign to prove who they were. He gets a glimpse into his destruction to come. There's a taster of what's to come. And then thirdly, there's the confronting of power. I watched uh, the film the other day. I kind of love everything Michael Jordan. It sort of takes me back to my sort of uh, 90s sort of upbringing. So I was watching the film Air about the uh, journey towards him getting his own shoe line. And there's a wonderful line in it from his mother as they're meeting with these big sort of Nike executives. She says, a shoe is just a shoe until my son steps into it. Well, here in this confrontation of power, a stick is just a stick until the living God breathes life into it and his power is seen. And the one who thinks he has all the power is to be confronted with one who's backed by the power of God. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, Moses is told, as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile and meet him. And the first three sort of plagues or strikes that God launches upon Pharaoh in Egypt come after approaching Pharaoh early in the morning during his ritual bath in the sacred waters of the Nile. And you shall say to him, verse 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. And here's a reminder of what has happened to this point. And so now comes God's strike with no request, with no opportunity for Pharaoh to turn around from it. That you shall know 
that I'm the Lord. And God's purpose is that the man who thinks that he's God would know that there is only one God and it's not him. With the staff that's in my hand, Moses tells him, I'll strike the water that's in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. And then we see the damage that will come. The fish will die, there will be a stink, and the Egyptians will grow discouraged and faint. And we find out actually in verse 19 here, it will affect all water, the rivers, canals, ponds, pools, everything in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Nobody escapes, there's no loophole in this. This is a devastating strike upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh. The Nile was central to Egypt. It was their main water source. It supported their agriculture and their economy. They had a large fishing industry from it and trade routes down the Nile. But more than that, it was part of their religious life. The Nile itself was considered sacred and worshipped and Pharaoh would ritually bathe in it. There were gods that were attached to it and worshipped Kinnum was one. The point that Pharaoh and the Egyptians need to learn then is that God controls the waters. Yahweh is the God who created all the cosmos from out of the waters before creation. The one who was hovering above the watery depths and raised up land and everything on it from within that midst. And he is the God who will save his people through the waters and destroy Egypt's armies. There's the confronting of power. And this must have been a point actually where finally, for once, Moses and Aaron sort of feel, great, well now surely Pharaoh will listen to us when he sees this. But look at those last five verses there, 20 to 25. It doesn't quite work out that way, doesn't it? Does it? God here is hitting where it hurts. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water. And I feel like the way in which this is sort of done, it's almost as if you could have seen this in Rosette. The point is to make this so dramatic, so deliberate, that everybody sees that it's come via the staff hitting the water. This is no sort of strange coincidence. This is no natural phenomena. This is the staff of God hitting the water. And the water in the Nile turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank. We hear the people couldn't stomach to drink the water anymore. The Nile can actually become red in colour during the period of heavy flooding in late summer and early autumn, commentators tell us. And this is caused by deposits of red soil that wash down it from Ethiopia. But this is something more, because those deposits of red soil may stain the water, but it would not kill the fish. It would not produce this stink. It would not make it foul to the taste. These things make it clear that this is something more than that natural phenomena that they knew. This is God. The Nile was the basis of their economy, the center of their worship, the source of their strength. And God has, in the strike of a staff, rubbed all that power out. The magicians of Egypt, though, we're told, did the same by their secret arts. Difficult to tell since all the water was sort of already affected already. So they have a somewhat 
loaded opportunity here, don't they? Even as they came before to replicate the miracle with the snake, they come ahead afterwards already knowing what it is they are to produce. But they managed to create some sort of counterfeit sign. But look what they couldn't do, because that's more significant. The sorcerers could imitate this miracle. They could not reverse it. They can produce an irrelevant and rather pointless counterfeit sign. They can't reverse the damage that's been done. They have some power, but not the same power. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The sorcerers may manipulate the elements, but they can't change Pharaoh's heart. And again, that might be the more significant thing that needs to happen here. There's an interesting thing going on with this language of the hardening of heart. It will carry on throughout uh, the interactions with Pharaoh here. I've got a slide for you here. This is a picture from something called the Book of the Dead. It shows the weighing of the heart as someone is approaching uh, the afterlife. It pictures a man named Annie meeting Anubis, the god of death. And his heart is being weighed against the feather of righteousness. And in the next slide, you sort of see that a little bit closer up. There you go. You see the feather on the right-hand side and his heart on the left. And when it keeps speaking of Pharaoh's heart being hard or being hardened, it's loaded language. It's language that Pharaoh would understand. And what's being threatened to Pharaoh is that he will be found to fail this test and find no life in the afterlife. But Anubis won't be his judge. Yahweh will be. And his future is not in his own hands because God hardens him. And the standard of righteousness will be no mythical feather but God himself. Good, right, and perfect. And yet Pharaoh turned, verse 23, and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. I find that a funny detail to include but maybe the only way that Pharaoh could keep up with his refusal was not looking at the consequences that he's caused maybe the only way that he could continue on in his stubbornness was to not have to look at what his actions had caused for his people the Egyptians verse 24 dug along the Nile for water to drink because they couldn't drink the water of the Nile when the Nile turned red with those uh, soil deposits, you could find clear water uh, that filtered through the sandy banks if you dug away at them. But there's no assurance here that they actually ever did find clear water. But in desperation, they do what they have to do to try and survive. It's okay for Pharaoh to turn his back on the consequences in his house, but he's left his own people facing ruin. This is a man claiming to be God, who will gamble Egyptian lives for his refusal to acknowledge God. And seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. And I imagine that would have felt like a very, very long time. This is the first of ten strikes where God reveals himself to a Pharaoh who doesn't want to look and doesn't want to listen, but he hits him where it hurts. 
Pharaoh believed, and the Egyptians believed with him, that Pharaoh was a representation of the gods. But God sent Moses to Pharaoh to be a representative of the only true God. Moses was only a representative of God, he wasn't God, but he would defeat Pharaoh through Moses. But later Jesus came to the earth not like God, but the exact representation of God the Father. The book of Hebrews puts it, He has spoken to us now by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Pharaoh claimed to be a god, but he was not. Moses was like God. Jesus is God. Pharaoh was, like Moses, only a representative, uh, representing Satan, our ultimate enemy. But God would destroy Satan in time, just as he destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. Isaiah 51 tells us, Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon, the word there is Tanyan again? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing? Pharaoh is like the dragon. Satan is the great dragon. But Jesus is the great dragon slayer. Romans 16 tells us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And Revelation 20 encourages us, the devil who has been deceived, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Where do we end this morning? Well, listen to these verses here from Colossians 2 that point us to Jesus and encourages us to look to him, to rely on him, to depend on him as God had commanded Moses as he approached Pharaoh. Colossians 2 verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is completely God. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. Jesus is king of kings, the head of all rule and authority. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, your sin can be put to death to live forever for righteousness. Through his perfect righteousness gifted to us, when our hearts are weighed, they pass. The spiritual forces of Satan are disarmed 
and will one day be destroyed by Christ Jesus. And so we're encouraged to look to the God amongst men, Christ Jesus, and to place our hope and our trust and our eternal future in his righteous and perfect hands, who has given himself for us, cancelling the record of debt, putting the powers that be to shame and disarming them. Let's pray and then we will sing a closing song together.